Uh, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We will get to enjoy hearing from our Lord, inspired as it will be. We'll get to hear from one of his disciples, Paul, as he exhorts Timothy. We'll be looking at chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. Let me go ahead and read the chapter for us so we can get a context and set a tone for ourselves this morning. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips. Without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power and avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected as regards the faith, but they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all as also that of those two who came to be. But you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra. What persecutions endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in things you have learned from uh, and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I've titled today, Us and Them. It is not that we are not sensitive to all of humanity and that we have many relationships with people who are both in Christ and who are not in Christ, who are lost. We have many of us and probably most every one of us sit in this room this morning who have family that uh, do not appear to be heading into eternity, but into hell. But there is a clear distinction we recognize in life that those who are in Christ have a different way of thinking, a different way of seeing life, a different future, a different eternity than those who are not in Christ. And their, their, 
the projection, the, the course of their life is one that will lead them into utter destruction. And so we recognize that distinction. And there's a tension that we sometimes feel in that dynamic. Much of what I want to impact today is to remind us of that which I know we already clearly know is that as we look at the world, there is a chaos and a beard. <laughs> There's a chaos that continues around their lives and they are set against us and yet we walk in peace and at least we should be walking in peace. And so we see that disconnect. As I think about what Paul has done in writing this letter to Timothy, we see that this was his last epistle that he wrote. And with that, it causes me to ponder. In fact, I may have shared this last time I spoke, is that as I get older and am mindful of that more of my days are behind me than in front of me, that my, my eventual going home will come uh, in the not-too-distant future. I'm not projecting anything. I'm just saying it's there in front of me. One of the things I would love to do is to be able to speak at my own funeral. Now, I don't mean that to be morbid or weird-sounding, but within that context, there is a, an opportunity to say something one more time and to offer declarations of the Gospel and the greatness of God in the anticipation of where I am at in that moment. And so I walk with that to some degree in my mind almost like in this moment where I am not guaranteed another opportunity to ever stand before you all ever again. Now, I may get hundreds of times, but I may never get another moment. And so I try to be appropriately grounded to say what needs to be said in these types of moments. And as I think about what Paul's doing with this letter to Timothy, he is clearly aware that his days are numbered. In fact, in the not-too-distant future after this letter, Paul is beheaded. And so he knew his days were coming to a close. And so the things that he's saying to Timothy here are kind of those final words, those last things, those last reminders. Look to Christ. Remember who He is. Remember who you are in Christ. Walk in that. Remember the value and the importance and the depth of the Word of God. Walk in that. Paul is writing these letters from prison. We think about that and we think, how can we flourish in such a confined environment? But I think sometimes we need those restrictions, those boundaries, to strip away all of the distractions of life and where, you, where the only thing you have is Christ alone in those moments. And so I am trying to be mindful of that for me. For you, I would say, do the best you can to strip away the noise of life. Don't miss these moments. As Paul's words, we think about the tone that he's carrying here for Timothy. We see a sensitivity to Timothy, my beloved son, 
there's a heartfelt relationship and a dynamics that's there. Longing to see you. I think about those that have gone on before us and how we long to see them. I know the context of what Paul is talking about here is here on, in, in the earth. But how many of us long to see those that have gone on before us to once again fellowship with our brothers and sisters who've, who, who are there now? Paul talks about in strength. He says, God has not given us a spirit of, tim- of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. That's what's in you now. Walk in that. My son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Understand that. Walk in that. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Don't shy away from the hardships and the trials that come. Walk in them. Let them do their work. As we look here at verse 1 and move into with that as kind of a general or very light backdrop, verse 1 says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. I bet we're all kind of aware that that's the case, right? This term last days is a general term, does not mean the end, but it means a period of time. It is the messianic I uh, also think of it as the church age, that the, the, this last days began with Christ's entrance into the world. And so it's this last period of time of which we are in right now. And Paul says there will be times of difficulty that will come. And certainly we are aware of that very clearly. Now this word times here is an interesting one. It's not the Greek word chronos, where you might see the clock ticking by as you're mindful of making sure I wrap up on time. But it is the Greek word kairos, which means a measure of time, a season, an epoch. It's not a particular duration of time, but it's a a box of time. It's a segment of time. I'm going to use the word epoch for our reference this morning. And so Paul is reminding Timothy that as you move forward, Timothy, there are going to be things, there are going to be periods of time where things are going to come and they're going to feel heavy. You need to be mindful of that. These epoch times will not come and go, but they will remain. And they will even increase in intensity. If you look at verse 13, Paul says, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And so what Paul's putting before Timothy is what's going to happen, the intensity of the, of the fall, the intensity of sin, the intensity of wicked humanity, the intensity of, human, of evil will only increase as time goes forward. It will deepen and it will come more quickly as he moves forward through time. We have the advantage of now looking back over 2,000 years And we can see that. Paul only knew that was to come because he understood the nature of how evil works. I think sometimes we get confused as to why 
why our left-leaning governmental structure isn't satisfied with they've got a few victories, why don't they just kind of chill and settle and let everything else just kind of ride on? Why do they continually seem to press in deeper and deeper and deeper? It is the nature of evil to consume and to press in. That is the way it works. It's not going to stop until Christ returns and stops it. Evil people are wicked. We see the imposters. We understand this false, the, if you will, the mask where they come in and look like one thing, but really there's something else totally different. It even says here that they are deceiving and being deceived, which is interesting. They're deceiving others, but even in the process, they're doing what? They're being deceived themselves. And so it only perpetuates itself more and more. This fall into futility, this layered deception, reminds me of uh, Paul's words in Romans 1, 21 through 25. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They were worshiping the earth. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to be a dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, <clears throat> because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And so we see this futile thinking as, as God is giving them over to the, to the desires of their flesh, of their hearts, their minds. They continue to press deeper and deeper into this way of living life. Uh, the picture I have here is one of a, a black hole where they go deeper into the black hole, but there is no bottom. There is no end. It is just plunging deeper and deeper into depravity. As we look here with what, as Paul begins to describe the nature of these, as we've read, they will be lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, reckless, lovers of pleasure, having the appearance of godliness. These are ultimately what we're looking at are false prophets, false teachers, those who would enter into the church uh, enter into believers' lives. And who do they target? I find this interesting here is they, they target unprotected, vulnerable women. Now think about going back to the Garden of Eden. I don't know where Adam was in proximity to Eve when the serpent approached her, but certainly the text indicates that he was disconnected or just apathetic towards what was going on. But the serpent approached the woman. He approached her in a vulnerable position. Now men, we are heads of the church. We are heads of our homes. And we have a responsibility, a God-given responsibility, to be mindful of our families, to be mindful of the people of this church. That is our call. That is what we carry. 
As I think about what these false prophets are doing here, giving the appearance of godlessness or godliness. Paul is talking about false prophets coming in and their target is women. And what they wind up giving women is they read, if you will, from the Bible. They'll give a sound of truth, but they don't know its power. They may use theologically sounding words, but don't understand them. They may give a promise of hope and and produce only utter destruction. This picture here of creeping into households I think of camouflage of a covert activity where if I want to be known that I'm going to overtake things, I'm going to, be, I'm going to knock on the front door. But that's not what the false prophets are doing. They're sneaking in and gaining access to women in particular, impacting how they think, presenting ideas. And that is so much the subtlety of Satan is he doesn't come in the front door per se. He is always mindful of being subtle in his attacks so that when he gets in to your life, he looks normal. He looks like he belongs. And then he begins to have a voice in your life. And you don't even know what's going on in the process until it's too late. As a result, I see women receiving an endless supply of theologically sounding uh, information, but no truth in the process. I see women that are left with a perpetual feeling of guilt, preying on their guilt, their vulnerabilities, and never led to the freedom from sin that comes with the true revelation of the Gospel. We see an endless string along with truth or clarity never comes. And this is where we see the attacks of the false prophets as they attack our our ladies so viciously. As I think about, and I know Jake and Josh and Pastor and I talk about this, We don't take the role, the responsibility of headship, of shepherd, of elder in this church lightly. While we may not accomplish it perfectly, we may not be able to execute it to the same degree with everybody. It is our heart's desire to protect this flock well. That is our heart's desire. That's what we want to do. That's what we seek to accomplish. We are not unaware of the vulnerabilities of our ladies. We're not unaware of the vulnerabilities of our children. And so we want to be mindful of that and provide that headship. We work to be guards and sentinels of the church. If you hear us, pastor, myself, others, seemingly always harping on culture and the impact that it brings into our lives and the potential destruction that it can do, that is part of how we think because we're always watching for that. We're always mindful of that. So we want to keep it in front of you so that you can also be mindful of that when you're in vulnerable places in life. 
I implore the husbands of this church to do the same thing in your homes. Again, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, you have that God-given responsibility to be the head in your home. It is not your wife's role to be the watchdog, to be the guard in your home. It is you. Please carry that well. As we look here and see Paul's words here of talking about difficult times were come and epochs of time, we have the benefit, as I mentioned, of looking over the course of the past 2,000 years and seeing movements that have come into the church, into culture. Dr. MacArthur laid out a historical survey of these dangerous epochs, and I'm going to take a few minutes to go through them because I think there's some value. You'll recognize most all of them, but I think there's some value here in walking through them. But at the core of all of them is going to come one fundamental idea. Is the serpent came to Eve and she said, did God really say? Is that fundamental rejection of the Word of God is ultimately what you're going to see at all of this. The first one is Gnosticism. It was a big thing that came up in the early church. Paul was dealing with it. You see in Colossians 2.8, where Paul is talking about do not be taken captive by vain philosophies, empty deceit, according to the elemental principles of the world, not according to Christ. He's warning the church to not be taken captive by these, by these individuals who come in with this special knowledge. Uh, Gnosticism is this idea that we have special knowledge or secret knowledge that you don't have. And so we're going to tell you what you don't know, kind of finish the story. This reminds me again of Genesis chapter 3 when Satan came to Eve and, and began to, to challenge her, to ask her questions, and begin to fill in the cracks. No, that's not what I want to say. He began to embellish and began to distort the truth. He began to twist the realities. Uh, out of this, we see false gospels such as the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, and others that came out of this movement. We still see this Gnosticism today. It is part of why I spend time with you talking about science. Because that's where I see a lot of Gnosticism in the sciences. One of the things that is called now is scientism. It is the belief that science alone can provide all the knowledge we need. By the way, that belief that science can produce all the knowledge that, and all the information we have is not a scientific position. You understand that, right? That's a philosophical position. So they're, they're defeating their own argument right from the get-go. The next one is sacramentalism which really began more in the 4th century. You think about Constantine. And when he began to establish uh, Christianity as the state religion. And so Christianity shifted from a personal relationship with God with Jesus, through Jesus Christ to more of a, a state-sanctioned uh, religious structure. Out of that came, it produced ceremonies and sacraments sacraments and symbols 
I remember in studies of, through this time period, there were artwork and statues. If there was a painting depicting Christ, that there was the belief, I think it's called iconoclast. There was the belief that that picture embodied Christ himself. And so it was, it, it, the picture itself, the painting itself was sacred simply because it depicted Christ. And you see this coming more and more along. Uh, we see what one of the things Martin Luther began to challenge was the buying of indulgences. And so really what we're seeing here is think Catholicism. And this is what this sacramentalism was about. As Luther recognized what the church was doing and its errors, its sin, he began to bring about a reformation. Now, we all know that Luther was, was banished and persecuted for that, but he sought to bring about a reformation because he saw the error that the church was walking in. But again, these ideas still remain with us today. Then in the 17th century, we see rationalism. The abandonment of faith for reason. Thought, reason was above all. Uh, this idea that my intellect uh, is superior to any divine revelation from God. Much of that way of thinking fills all of academia today. Once again, it still shows up in the sciences. We see this chiefly orchestrated through the age of the Enlightenment. Uh, some of those key thinkers were Charles Lyell, Charles Darwin, Thomas Paine, Thomas Huxley. Darwin's uh, origin of species came in the midst of all of this as the, as the thinkers of the day were beginning to abandon the divine revelation of the Word of God and, and pushing themselves more down into reason and rationalism Darwin's theory began to take hold. And it was, as I understand, Darwin was concerned when he first published his book that, that he would be really ostracized because he knew the implications of what it would do with respect to how people viewed God. Uh, and then some 20 years later, I believe he wrote his autobiography where he fully embraced that, that rejection. And he was right. But it was part of a movement that we see here within rationalism. Most of our scientific disciplines that we enjoy today, uh, that we see functioning today, came out of this time period. And, uh, and again, it is still with us today and deeply rooted into the academia. Orthodoxism, which is one that I had not heard of before, it was more of a time period in the 19th century where people were really very much governed by rules and regulations. What's interesting, Dr. MacArthur points out, is that the printing and distribution of Bibles was at a really all-time high at that time, but it had really no effect upon the church as a very transform transformative work, which seems to be indicative of the fact of where people were. They simply plucked out uh, that which they could fit into their already way of thinking and weren't transformed by the truth of the Word itself. Politicism in the early 20th century is the church became deeply connected to politics and the government. Of course, we see that just inundating our world today is this connection here. 
but I appreciated this example here in the 1930s is Nazi Germany, Hitler did not persecute or dismantle the church. That was not his pursuit. That was not his goal. But ultimately what he sought to do was redefine the church. And so he dismissed the Old Testament because of the Jewish influence. He dismissed some of the New Testament for the same reason and just seemed to pick and choose what he thought was best. And so in doing so, redefined the church itself and came up with a new form of church called the German Christian Faith Movement. And so the church is continuing. And so that, that was the political structure at that day and how it integrated uh, theological, biblical ways of thinking into its, into its already functioning form. The church today continues to buy into politicism as we see this belief that somehow if we can just make peace with the government and get government reformed or change laws, somehow that we can get the laws of the land and the government to function in some moral fashion. That's not the purpose of why we exist is to develop that kind of relationship. I think I'll make this point later, but it's interesting. Paul in this work here is not dealing with, he's not addressing, he's not challenging Timothy to take on the governmental structure. He's concerned about the influence of false prophets in the church. You see, Colossians 1 reminds us in verse, I think it's verse 16, that that God establishes governments and kingdoms and he removes them. We as believers might have preferences when we look at the political structure and certainly we want justice to be accomplished through that. But it's God who puts these in place and removes them. Our focus is here protecting this body chiefly. The next one in the 1950s is ecumenism. The concept and principle that Christians who belong to different Christian denominations should work together to develop closer relationships amongst their churches and promote Christian unity. I think we should just all get along, right? Now, what have you got to give up with that, let's just all get along? I'm not talking about let's go out and be cantankerous and just have our way, but what have you got to give up when you just said, you know, unity without doctrine? Doctrine divides. Doctrine clarifies. Doctrine says yes to this and no to that. It's why we teach it. Sentimentalism. Oh, I just want to be nice and just feel good. Tolerance of error. That's not that bad. This isn't that bad. Let's just kind of just wash over that. We can't, we can't function like that, church. A lack of discernment. Boy, those of you who are closer to my age have been around long enough to see the church grow and Christians grow with this Lack of discernment. They have no sense of understanding what the truth of the gospel is. They have no sense with what is here in this word. And therefore, they're vulnerable and subject to be influenced by literally everything. 
In the 1960s, we see experimentalism. I hope I said that right. The charismatic movement. The move from truth to feeling. Now, all of us in here have feelings and emotions. They're part of how we're created. But if they're driving the ship, we're in trouble for any one of us. We've got to be able to be governed by what is true and what is right and what is just. I see repeatedly in our culture today that when truth is put before somebody who is deeply set into this emotional mindset, they have no way to respond. They have no way to, uh, to process what has been put before them. And I'm concerned that much of this charismatic movement uh, embraces and embodies this. Move from external revelation to internal intuition. I think God just told me to do that. Doesn't matter what it, it doesn't matter how it aligns with Scripture. I just feel like this is what I'm supposed to do. And boy, I tell you what, if you come to me and you say, God told me I think this is what I'm supposed to do, and I turn around and tell you, well, God told me you're wrong. <laughs> Who gets to be right with that, you know? We need an objective, external truth that we can anchor our thinking upon. Move from the Word of God to prophecies and visions. And boy, we understand that the airwaves are filled with this. The Joel Olsteins, the Benny Hens, Kenneth Copelands. I wouldn't trust them to, to show me the index of where the books of the Bible are. They wouldn't know truth if they tripped over it. 1980s was subjectivism, which is psychology, more of, again, of embracing this, how do we feel? But it's, it's really almost, let's sit down and talk. Now, let me finish this thought first. We all have struggles in life, right? We all feel this, this strife that's in, in, even within our own hearts. But if our sole objective for solving those problems is to simply sit down with a psychologist or be medicated by it, we are not solving the problem. Medicine does not solve sin problems, church. Medicine does not solve sin. Psychology does not solve sin. Are there places that we have brothers and sisters who bring about sound, godly counsel? Yeah. I'm not simply saying we don't talk to each other and you're just on your own. But what we do within this fellowship is unique and different. We're not prescribing medicine. We're not looking to say, well, if you, if you rest more, you're going, to get a, you're going to have a better day tomorrow. There is something, we understand there's something going on that as God is shaping and moving and working in us, that sometimes trials and challenges are there from God to serve a purpose, to shape us, to cause us to see things differently. We as brothers and sisters must be sure we're pouring the truth of the gospel into one another, walking with one another, bearing one another's burdens. Iron sharpens iron. 
Sometimes the best thing you need to hear from me is, the, is something that's going to hurt, not just simply placate you. We need to be confronted with our sin. One of the byproducts I found interesting is narcissism. You know, it, the internet's always an interesting thing. You know what? I love this definition of narcissistic personality disorder is a mental health condition in which people have an unreasonably high sense of their own importance. They need and seek too much attention and want people to admire them. People with this disorder may lack the ability to understand or care about the feelings of others, but behind this mask of extreme confidence, they are not sure of their self-worth and are easily upset by the slightest criticism. I'm not saying that people are not really walking through this kind of stuff. I'm not dismissing that. I realize that the world creates a very difficult place. But when I call sin and the fallenness of humanity a disorder, I'm not just mischaracterizing things. I am really misleading you. And what you need, you may need me or someone else walking with you, shepherding with you, discipling you. You may need that. But you need the gospel and you need the truth of what that gospel means is they were all fallen. And the only hope, the only hope that comes from that is to be born again, to be redeemed. I don't want to fix your mental disorder. I want to see your heart changed and your life be redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. If we've got other things to walk through, we'll walk through them. But I don't want to see just you have a better day tomorrow. It's interesting here as we kind of revisit this idea of with the ladies and being vulnerable. This is another area that I'm concerned about. According to the CDC, during 2015 through 2018, 13.2% of adults aged 18 and over used antidepressant medications in the past 30 days. Use was higher among women, 17.7%, than men, 8.4%. Now, I'm not, I'm not here to, to say that I'm qualified to understand all the particulars, but I've got several data points here, and all of them indicate a higher women impact here. Women are more likely to be on medicine here. And I have to ask the question, is it because our women are more vulnerable and that we're more likely to do things to prescribe medication for them? Is that part of the question? Is it part of the answer? Now again, let me be clear, because I'm trying to be very sensitive to this, because I know in all likelihood, some of the ladies in here and some of the men, for that matter, are walking through this. And I am not trying to be insensitive to the journey that you're walking through. But to say it again, I want to see your life changed and embrace who Christ is in your life. Let the Holy Spirit transform your thinking and embrace the Word. Are you in the Word? If we need to walk through other things, let's do that. In 1990s, mysticism, which is the belief in everything, 
in the 1990s also is pragmatism. The appropriate means for ministry is whatever is popular. So if a church is growing and getting bigger, they must be doing it right. Let's do that. That's a danger, isn't it? And we have to be mindful of that. Syncretism involves the merging or assimilation of several originally discrete traditions, especially in the theology and mythology of religion. Meaning the Muslims, eh, maybe we differ a little bit, but they're fine. Jehovah Witness, maybe they're different a little bit, but they're fine. They're not. And we need to be mindful of that. And the last one is relativism. You have your truth and I have my truth. And we can be independent of one another. The truth is, this idea is truth is subjective to the individual. That what I believe can be different, even though they might conflict, we're just seeing things differently. The lie that is tucked in here is that if we hold truth as being a subject, uh, subjective thing and not absolute, the statement that truth is subjective and not absolute is an absolute statement about truth. And once again, we see people in their willingness to just make everything okay and everything right create these loops that they cannot close on them, uh, by themselves. So these are much of what we see here, and I appreciate Dr. MacArthur in unpacking this for us, is we get to look back over the past 2,000 years and we see these epochs. And in many respects, they're coming more quickly. They're coming upon us with more intensity. They're not on their way. They did not just arrive. They are here. This is them. This is the us and them. This is them. This is what the world is throwing upon us. Rejecting what is good, defiling that which is holy, hating the truth, and attacking the most vulnerable amongst us. And Paul makes an interesting turn here in verse 10. But you... Now he's talking to Timothy, but I believe he's talking to us as well here. But you, Timothy... You know my life. You know my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my perseverance, my persecutions, my sufferings. You know me. You have seen me. Paul is not saying, look at me and look what I've done and look what I've figured out. <clears throat> He's saying, God has been faithful in my life. You have seen Him work in my life. If you're going to look at me, I want you to look at me because you're going to see Christ here. That's what you're going to see. Any one of us might say, I have, can, I have a testimony of what God's done in my life, but I'm not having you look at me, so I want you to see my good works. I want you to see Christ and what He's done in my life. What a joy that we can have to be able to have these kinds of testimonies. Now, I will note in this process, and you saw his list here, the first six things were like, okay, we can go with that, but he's, now he's talking about perseverance, persecution, and suffering. And we don't always embrace that very well. We don't long for that. 
But what Paul knew was that God had brought him to, to and through those moments as well. It says that God delivered him. Now, what do we know is that God, did God really deliver Paul? Because not too long afterwards, his head was chopped off. But again, let's think here what Paul's trying to say here and accomplish. Paul isn't saying, here in this world, God delivered me, and I've got everything good here that I need here. Paul had a kingdom mindset, an eternal mindset, and he knew the faithfulness of God. And even in the midst of having his head removed, God was delivering him and being faithful. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Because that's, that's where we are, that's where we're going, church. In many respects, I want us to long for that. When you're being persecuted for the cause of Christ, is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's a good thing. That means the world has identified you as one of His. The world's going to hate you because of Christ. That's okay. And one day, Christ will return and we'll be in eternity and glory with Him. Long for that day. It's interesting here, I, as I started these verses, I was thinking about how, much, how many verses there are in the Bible about suffering and trials and tribulations. And I'm like, wow, that's a long list. The Bible talks a lot about this. Matthew 24, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations. Why? Because of my name. 1 Peter 1.6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. 1 Peter 3.14, but even if you should suffer for the, name, for the sake of righteousness, you are what? You are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. Romans 5 and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. That's good. 2 Corinthians 4, we are afflicted in every way. Uh, but we're not crushed. Nope. We're not perplexed. We're not despairing. Because our hope is set somewhere else. 2 Corinthians 4, for momentary light affliction. I would say probably not everybody thinks that every time you're going through a trial. This is a momentary light affliction, and yet that is the byproduct of an eternal mindset. For us, an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Paul is teaching us to follow Christ. He's teaching us that to follow Christ will bring about persecution. He's teaching us that to follow Christ, we will be sustained and delivered. We know that the world hates us because it hates Christ. And we can walk in that. We can be okay with that. We are ones who possess truth. We are the ones who possess light. And while you may not enjoy the bumps and the bruises that come along with it, you can walk confidently knowing every day 
Being in Christ means you possess that which is just, right, true, lovely, good. We can walk in that. Jake and I have been talking off and on here in recent weeks, recent months for that matter, about the joy that we can find as a fellowship that when one another of us face these trials and these times, what a joyful opportunity it is to come together, to be able to minister to one another and to be ministered to by one another. There's something special about having people who are like-minded, who care about you, who will come along beside you and help shoulder your burden, not take it from you, but shoulder it with you. Who will, in compassion and love, give of their selves, often beyond what they have, what they can spare, because they care about you. That is, that is a rare commodity in this world. And while we may take it for granted sometimes, we get to enjoy it. And it is part of our lives, our daily lives, not our every Sunday lives, our daily lives. As, I, as we saw with the epochs over the past 2,000 years, the lost and dying world claims to have a special knowledge, some sense of uniqueness. But all they truly possess is a false religion, a false sense of how they want to influence the world. In light of this, their hate for Jesus Christ and the church is clear. And we can see that. We understand that. We feel that. And their efforts are dead set upon the destruction of all that is good. As the redeemed, us, the church, we live in the hope of Christ. We are not crushed by the calamity and evil of the world, as we've already talked about. In fact, God uses this calamity and this evil to refine us, to purify us, to shape us, to mold us more into what? Into the likeness of His Son, to have the mind of Christ. And we get to walk in that. And that's a joy that we get to, to have every day. As we look at these last group of verses here, verses 14 through 17, we see Paul coming back. I really hear the heartbeat of Paul talking to Timothy. You, Timothy, continue to remain, abide in, in the Word. Remain in what you've learned. As I think about the modern church today, we, I think so much of the church has lost its faith in Christ. It's lost its anticipation of Christ's return. It has substituted it for models of potential success and big days and rock bands and like I'm not suggesting this, okay, but smoke. I don't, yeah, well, we'll talk about that later, okay? <laughs> But you understand that there's that entertainment value that, the, that so many of the churches, because they want to draw people in, but they're tapping into their feelings. And there's, there's a danger that goes with that. Paul continues, the things you have become convinced of from childhood. Many of us have been raised in Christian homes. And we have the benefit of having those truths instilled in us from a very young age. I would guess that many of you who've come to faith in Christ later in life maybe feel like you're running to catch up. 
don't worry, the Lord will be faithful and he will bring you along that journey. But we need to hang on to these things. There really isn't a new thing for us to go discover. There isn't a new thing for us to go find. Much as we see the world wanting to reinvent itself over and over and over, we as believers just recognize that we've got the truth of the gospel, now walk in it, abide in it, remain faithful in it. Go deeper, but remain in it. What you have gave you the wisdom unto salvation. What we learned as children was the basis upon which we became believers so that when the Holy Spirit called us and uh, regenerated our minds and our hearts, we were prepared to walk into that. Church, just walk in it. Be faithful in that. Abide in that. The world juggles half-truths. We don't have to. I guess let me, let me park us here with this, this, this restating this and maybe kind of come back to this word. I think so much of what Paul is really trying to exhort Timothy to is there just to continue to walk daily in a faithful relationship with Jesus Christ, being in His Word, enjoying the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ, being faithful to proclaim the truth of the Gospel. In fact, he, we read here in verse uh, chapter 4, verse 2, Paul's words are really quite simple. Preach the Word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Preach the word. If I could leave this with you this morning, church, be prepared to share the word, to declare the greatness of the gospel. If you don't, then they may not hear it. That's our call. Father, we thank you so much for the time you've given us this morning, for the opportunity to love one another, but also sit together and enjoy the greatness of your word, the greatness of the truths that are tucked within it, the realities of our ability to walk together as brothers and sisters, caring for, caring for one another, and anticipating eternity. Father, thank you for the morning. Continue to guide and strengthen us through this day. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn dot o-r-g